Welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Lauren Evans. And I'm Virginia Allen. I am back from Africa. It was a great trip. But I returned to America where Lauren informed me of some pretty tragic news. There's a tampon shortage, uh, which is like, welcome back. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't even know about it until I listened to last week's Problematic Women episode. And after listening to it, I, I tried not to hoard, but I'm, in my mind, I was like, that is one thing I cannot go without. <laughs> you got to collect those. <laughs> so I went and I bought three boxes. <laughs> so. Well, and the funny thing, sort of funny slash not funny. So while I was in South Africa, um, we did a couple large um, shopping trips because we were there with a, a missions team. Um, and so we went into one of the larger grocery stores in the city close to us. And my sister pointed out that their grocery stores were way better stocked That's than so ours crazy. in America. It's so crazy. Like, oh, guys, get it together. My mom sent me a photo yesterday of her Aldi. The Isle of Shame was completely empty. So luckily that wasn't food, but still. Yeah. I love that you just called it the Isle of Shame. Yeah. <laughs> it's either the Isle of Shame or the Bad Isle. But you know that Isle where it's just... All some, the random stuff that you don't you, need, but, but you're, you're like, like I you need want. that. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which I, I think it's a sign of the times because Aldi just has to focus on getting food and they can't focus on getting all the extras and it's... Yeah, yeah, it's sad. Well, I, I feel like one of the lessons that America needs to learn is we have got to be producing more of our own stuff mm. within America. We cannot mm. be so dependent on other nations because this is in part the result. Um, all right. Well, we have a lot to cover today. What a great, great, bright note to start the I show. I know. Sorry, guys. <laughs> <laughs> And Lauren and Virginia are back. (laughs) (laughs) And everything is doomed. (laughs) (laughs) We'll try and be a little happier at some point in the show. No promises. Yeah, no promises. It's a little heavy. All right, Lauren, what do we have queued up? On today's Problematic Women, we are celebrating the 50th anniversary of Title IX. Meanwhile, Biden is trying to change the definition of sex, a move that would jeopardize all the protections Title IX put in place for 50 years. Plus, we are still waiting on some big rulings from the Supreme Court, but one significant ruling on school choice was released this week. We tell you what you need to know, and Disney ruins another movie with its woke agenda. But as always, we'll be crowning our Problematic Woman of the Week. Each week on Problematic Women, we sort through the news to find stories that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women, those whose views and opinions are so often excluded by those on the so-called feminist left. If you are a problematic woman or just someone who supports strong, independent women, please consider supporting us by leaving a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and encouraging others to subscribe. It really does make a difference. All right, let's get to it. Today is an important day. It's the 50th anniversary of Title IX. And just for a quick refresher, Title IX is a protection for women and acts to ensure that there are equal opportunities for women in many, many fields, but specifically in in sports. And that's really what we're focusing on today. Since it was put in place in 1972, Title IX has restricted sex-based discrimination in any education program, which, like we said, of course, also includes sports. So like to give an example, if there was uh, a public high school that had a a $10,000 budget for their boys' sports teams, um, then they would also need that same budget for girls' sports teams. There has to be this equal 
playing field uh, that levels everything out and creates equal opportunities for men and women under Title IX. However, now on the 50th anniversary of Title IX, this protection is under a major threat. And here with us to discuss is pretty much the perfect person to have this discussion with. (laughs) One of our favorite legal experts, Sarah Perry. Welcome, Sarah. Thanks for having me back. So, Sarah, for 50 years, Title IX has ensured women are given equal opportunities in school sports. Because of Title IX, schools across the nation are required to give women athletic opportunities just as they give men. But the Biden administration is trying to do something that would radically change Title IX and remove those protections for women. Can you explain what they're planning on doing? Well, it's a huge change because Mm -hmm. they are expanding the definition of sex as Mm -hmm. it has been in federal law for 50 years. Biological distinctions between male and female to include sexual orientation and gender identity. Now, that's huge because Title IX envisions and its regulations describe separate opportunities, separate facilities, things like dorm rooms or housing accommodations, bathrooms, locker rooms, restrooms, sports teams, that by function of a woman's distinct biology and her need for privacy and security are distinctly separate from those of men. So this is going to open any program, any facility, any team that is designated male-female to those identifying one way or the other. Mm. And there is no testosterone requirement, no surgical affirmation required. A biological boy can go to a sports team, say the women's track team, and say, today identify as a woman and steal away a woman's track championship just like that. We've seen it happen already. Leah Thomas and her NCAA championship in the 500-meter freestyle for the women's title was absolutely stunning to watch. By almost two full seconds, that individual finished before the other women competitors. And it's disheartening to recognize that that tiny microcosm that everyone watched transpire on the national stage is now going to become the state of affairs for every school in the country. How does the Biden administration have the authority to do this? It seems like such a radical step to say, oh, we're just going to redefine what sex is. Right. And particularly so in the only piece of federal legislation distinctly separated by sex. Mm. It is the only sex-specific civil rights law. Other civil rights law will include sex among other protected categories. But this one only goes to distinctions between male and female. It doesn't address any other category. But what they've done is they've engaged in something called rulemaking. And that's a fancy way of saying the government goes through the process of following the Administrative Procedure Act. It takes a piece of law it's already tasked with enforcing. And it says, well, we're going to clarify. We think that something ambiguous appears here. So we're going to clarify it by issuing what's called a new rule. And under that rule, they have to send it to the Office for Management and Budget, get a rubber stamp of approval, Office for Management and Budget sends it back, and then the department has to go, ta-da, here's our brand spanking new rule. What we think will happen is that this rule will go public. They will probably try to do it this month to coincide with Pride Mm -hmm. Month, and of course, we know the 50th anniversary of Title IX, and they'll be able to open it up for what's called notice and comment. That allows 30 to 60, sometimes 90 days for the public. You and I 
way, everyone who wants to, to weigh in saying, here's what I like, here's what I don't like, this is a terrible idea. And then the Department of Education is duty-bound, legally required to take into account every one of those public comments. I did it at the Department of Education. (laughs) It is tedious. It is exhausting. But it's a way to make sure that the federal government is accountable to the citizens of the country. So that is his purported authority. He is using this notice and comment, this rulemaking process to say, well, we think the term sex is ambiguous. And the Supreme Court had a decision two years ago, the Bostock Mm. versus Clayton County case. And remember, that is where the Supreme Court said discrimination based on sex is also discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity, but in which they said, we begin with the presumption that sex means, as Congress said in 1964, biological distinctions between males and females. Sometimes I think the liberals like to sort of gloss over that as an initial (laughs) starting point, but they have used that as their foundation to say, well, this rule is ambiguous and we're just going to clear it up. Mm -hmm. So that's exactly where they're coming from. This is not popular with everyday Americans. Most Americans believe that women should have the opportunity to play in sports and have those sports be fair. And they they want to take some sort of compassionate stance to these transgender individuals and, and find solutions. But they don't believe that the solution is to redefine sex in Title IX. Why do you think the Biden administration, A, thinks this is popular and is trying to push this down on the 50th anniversary and kind of put a dark cloud over this day for women? You know, I think that's that's a great question. Part of the problem is that this has been the administration's pet policy agenda mm. from day one. One of his mm. first executive orders on the day he took office was mm-hmm. signing Executive Order 13988 on sexual orientation and gender identity in federal law, telling every federal agency, take a look at your sex discrimination law, make sure it includes sexual orientation and gender identity. And one of the last dominoes to fall was the Department of Education. This for him, getting this accomplished during Pride Month and in concurrence with the 50th anniversary of this longstanding landmark civil rights law would be, I think, a cherry on top for this uh, administration. That's his policy push. Americans do not support it. 71%, according to a recent YouGov University of Maryland uh, poll, indicated they did not want transgender sports participation. Listen, the law separates sports by guaranteeing equal, if separate, teams for males and women. You can make them co-ed. Title IX envisions that, listen, if they want to play together, they can do that. You mm-hmm. can make a co-ed team. You could make a co-ed track team or mm-hmm. co-ed water polo or whatever you wanted to do. <laughs> That's an option or even development of a transgender league. But taking women's opportunity mm-hmm. and infusing it with men who identify as women rolls back the clock on 50 years of progress. Well, and you're not going to let this dark cloud ruin your day of celebrating Title IX. No, I mean, a little, I well, you are participating in a really cool rally with a partner organization of ours, IWF. Can you, Independent Women's Forum? Yes. Can you let us know what that rally is and 
what you're planning on speaking. This is Wednesday. The rally is going to be on Thursday. Correct. So the rally is Thursday at 11 o'clock at Freedom Plaza in Washington, D.C. We have buses coming in from all over the country. We are going to have some very prominent national athletes, some national political leaders, all women speakers. And we're all going to be talking about different aspects of why Title IX is important, why avoiding changing a law that has worked for women for so many years is so critically important. Important. And one of the things I'm going to talk about is a little bit about what we discussed about how this is an attempt to shoehorn a political agenda into a law that doesn't need clarifying. Mm-hmm. We don't need sex to include gender identity. Sex is unambiguous, despite the administration's wholehearted efforts to make sure that it includes gender identity. So that's going to be what I'm going to discuss. What I love about this event, too, is that it is not just conservative women. We have Radical feminist. I saw they announced Tulsi Gabbard as a speaker. Why is it important to show that this isn't just a conservative or a leftist issue, but you're really bringing together women from all over the political spectrum? You know, because the bipartisanship of this particular fight goes to the fundamental nature of human biology and what we understand to be true, what we know to be true, what the science tells us to be true, and what we can see with our own eyes. Listen, if we we start to bend on... On something as fundamental as biological reality, then everything else is up for grabs. This, to me, was a much harder fight than I thought it was going to be. It's sort of like I like to use the analogy of the emperor has no clothes, the fable where the emperor is not actually wearing anything, but all the townspeople have sort of drunk the Kool-Aid and tell him he looks tremendous in his brand new threads. (laughs) And in many respects, this feels very much like it. We understand that truly there are individuals who suffer with something called gender dysphoria, which is a mental health condition. And there are different counseling therapies that can be approached. But I would no more allow my daughter to cut off an arm if she felt like an amputee than I would tell my teenage son that he's a girl if he wakes up feeling like that someday. We have to be able to leave room for honest discussion without being painted as haters Mm -hmm. or TERFs, trans-exclusionary radical feminists, (laughs) for those of you who don't know that, that terminology, or shouting people down in public spaces. If we can't have an honest, measured, realistic conversation about something as fundamental as biology, then the country is further afield than I thought it was. Yeah. Sarah, the million dollar question is, will the Biden administration be successful? What do you think? Are they going to win this of actually redefining what sex is? Well, I hope they won't. Yeah, you know, it's it's very hard to say. It depends on what the level of political and public opposition is. If we can get that comment portal flooded the minute the new rule is announced, if we can get the sand in the gears to show sort of slow down that regulatory process, maybe the administration will be forced to reconsider the fact that, man, we didn't take into account, for example, the cost to schools to change their bathroom setups or mm-hmm. add urinals in the women's dorms or change any one of a number of programs to make sure that now gender identity is included and men and women are now sharing the same spaces, facilities, and programs. There are costs, I can guarantee you, this administration has not taken into account. And what happens now when you have competing claims of discrimination? Mm. Someone who is a biological male who claims to be female claiming to want to run on, for example, a women's track team, and she decides 
a biological girl for whom the law exists to protect, decides she also is being discriminated against in that case. I don't think the administration has thought about whose claim of discrimination wins. Hmm. These are the kind of battles in which if we left the law alone, we would not have to engage in. Yeah. So how are you able to submit those comments? There will be a notice in the Federal Register published. Heritage is going to be very loud and very (laughs) public about this. Heritage Action is also going to be involved. And we're going to publish that link at heritage.org so that people can submit their public comments. And yours truly is working on our formalized comment organizationally. We're going to get our education experts, our regulatory analysis experts, legal experts to submit our organization's comments. So an organization can submit or individuals can submit, but the more, the better. And we're going to help publish that. How many pages do you have? Well, right now it's at 18. So (laughs) (laughs) I pity the person that has to read your comments. (laughs) I tried to keep it cool, you know. Just an easy 18. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I do want to note that we've seen a little bit of good news this week on this front of, of the women's sports debate and protecting women's sports. Uh, over the weekend, the World Federation for Swimming, called FINA, announced that biological men are not allowed to swim in women's swim competitions. And the only exception to this is if a male, quote unquote, transitions to present as a female before the age of 12. FINA uh, is the swimming committee that is recognized by the Olympics. So it's a really big deal for them to say that biological men cannot compete in women's sports. And it's especially a big deal in light of the fact that male swimmer Leah Thomas uh, just recently uh, said that uh, he he would consider competing at the Olympics. Um, so, Sarah, you know, this is obviously a really, really big deal. Do you, do you think that we're going to see other athletic associations follow suit and follow FINA's example of saying, no, men can't compete with women. I think we would have seen a better outcome if the NCAA had sort of stuck their stake in the ground on trans participation in women's sports. They left it. They basically passed the buck and they left college athletics up to the transgender policies, up to each of the individual governing bodies for every sport, whether it's swimming, track, volleyball, whatever it happens to be. So they've sort of passed the buck. FINA has taken its own approach. I wish they had said no trans participation at all mm-hmm. because there are still psych- there are, uh, physiological advantages that cannot be overcome even if transitioning takes place before puberty. There's some initial studies from um, the attorney general's office coming out of West Virginia. They've actually done prepubertal studies that now indicate 10, 11, 12, the athletic advantages start to distinguish themselves. Wow. So wow. I wish FINA had said, we're going to draw a line in the sand, no participation at all. Mm-hmm. This this is a slightly better second step, but mm-hmm. I think it depends ultimately on what the courage and moral fortitude is of these individuals governing bodies is and their leaders as well. I'm hoping that the more athletes stand out and speak out on things like this, the better off the outcome is going to be. And I worry about this being a Trojan horse, that doctors are now going to use this to parents when a 10, 11 year old to come out of being like, well, we got to transition them now because if we wait till 13... Yeah, I worry for I worry that as well. And we've already seen in multiple states, New Jersey, California, Wisconsin, Michigan, 
these social transitions taking place behind mm-hmm. parents' backs, mm-hmm. where school psychologists, school counselors, school nurses are saying, well, Johnny feels like a Jane today. Mm-hmm. So I tell you what, we'll call you Jane at school, and you can run on the other Jane's track teams, but we won't say anything to your parents in absolute contravention of parental authority and, quite frankly, the constitutionally recognized right to parent and see the upbringing of your children. So we're seeing, again, public education infusing this woke ideology into the hearts and minds of the most susceptible. That's why I think God bless those teachers out there who haven't, you know, sort of bent the knee to the woke ideology on gender and critical race theory. But public education is at this point, I would I would not want to say unsalvageable, but really on the cusp of needing a significant overhaul. And if there's anything by which I'm encouraged, it's the fact that parents are waking up to some of the realities in public education. They are taking back school board elections. We saw what happened in Virginia. There was a sea change, mm-hmm. an entire sea change based predominantly on one issue, and that's parents' rights. Yep. They went, finally, someone recognizes us. So I think that's an encouragement for people who are listening to recognize how important the lives and minds and hearts are of the young Americans, number one, and number two, how much parents' authority has been really relegated to sort of the dustbin of history. We have to take it back. Yeah. Well, in our next segment, we're going to talk more about that. And Sarah, we need your legal expertise for this. So stay with us um, because we're going to talk about some big news at the Supreme Court. Um, But first, if you are enjoying this episode of Problematic Women and want to find other other like-minded podcasts, then look no further than She Thinks. She Thinks is a podcast production of the Independent Women's Forum, and every Friday at 9 a.m. Eastern, host Beverly Hallberg is joined by policymakers and thought leaders to cut through the spin and bring you facts on the issues that matter most. From the economy and education to foreign policy and everything in between, she thinks has you covered. And if you can't wait for that next episode to drop, then you can listen to past podcasts at iwf.org or search for She Thinks Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Religious freedom and school choice were two big winners in a Supreme Court decision that was released Tuesday. And I always like, as a conservative, to hear big winners in Supreme Court in the same sense. (laughs) It feels like it doesn't happen that often. (laughs) But as a quick reminder, school choice programs allow tax dollars to follow a child to the school of their choice if they choose not to attend the local public school. The case, Carson v. Macon asked the question, can a family use money given to them by the government through a school choice program to pay for their child's education at a private Christian school? The Supreme Court has ruled, yes, a family can use that money from a school choice program for a Christian school. They determined that this does not violate the Establishment Clause of the Constitution, which says the government shall make no establishment of religion. Sarah, number one, thanks for sticking with us. I, I know you have a very busy day and your time is very valuable. And so I just want to ask, why is this case so important And why is it important that the school choice money can be used for religious schools? 
Well, we were just talking about sort of the state of public education. And listen, I have three teenagers in public education. I worked at the U.S. Department of Education. (laughs) I still believe public education is for all of us. But in those areas where the government has allowed a public benefit program but discriminates based on the status of a school as being religious and says, as Maine did, okay, listen, we're going to give tuition assistance to parents who want to send their kids to public school or to private school. The only one that we won't allow you to use assistance for is a private religious school. Mm -hmm. The Supreme Court rightly recognizes, uh, guys, that's inherently discriminatory. Mm -hmm. So what they did is they sort of closed the loop. There were two previous decisions on school uh, religious schools or benefits that were available to religious organizations. One was a case called Trinity Lutheran versus Comer in 2017, and that's where Missouri had tried to shut out religious organizations from a government benefit program, believe it or not, on playground rubber matting. Okay, so they said, listen, we'll give you guys a tax benefit to be able to put in this new um, rubber matting to make sure that your kids are safe. Well, Trinity Lutheran Church wants to participate. They don't get the tax benefits. And the Supreme Court said, guys, you can't lock people out if you're making the the benefit available. You can't lock out organizations strictly because they happen to be religious in status. Mm -hmm. Then three years later in 2020, in a case called Espinoza versus Montana Department of Revenue, the Supreme Court was faced with looking at Montana, what's called a Blaine Amendment, a constitutional amendment in the state constitution that says, we're not going to fund any religious school at all. We're going to make public dollars available. But if any particular religious school participates, we're going to withdraw the funding. Again, just a clearly hostile, discriminatory attempt to cut out religious institutions. This case was unique because the parents were actually being funded. This benefit went to them as private, individual, state citizens and taxpayers. They could have sent their kids anywhere. They wanted to send them to two Christian schools. It was two sets of parents. And they sued the um, commissioner of uh, education. And they said, listen, we should be able to use what you've given us, this publicly available benefit at a private religious school, because the only thing you've done is cut out religious schools. You've given it to everybody. And then you've said, we can't use it in this one category. And it just so happens to be religious. And the Supreme Court said, listen, we made it clear in Trinity Lutheran, we doubled up in Espinoza. Now we're going to make it abundantly clear for the third time. You can't discriminate based on an organization's religious status or the fact that you're going to use this publicly available benefit for religious use. So it basically closed that gap on status versus use. It finally said, guys, you can use tax dollars at a private religious school because when a government, when a state says we're going to subsidize private education, that's great. You also have to subsidize religious education. Mm, it was such a big win. Well, Sarah, right now it sort of feels like all of Washington, D.C. is holding its breath. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> as, as, you know, we're, we're like turning blue from holding our breath. A little, little bit. A little bit. Yeah, people are shouting in front of the Supreme Court. So we're about in the last two weeks of the Supreme Court session for this term. Um, talk us through what what the next two weeks is likely going to hold. We're waiting still on the Dobbs case. Yes. Um, just give us a, f- a few highlights. What are the cases that you're waiting for, that you're watching? And do we have 
any sense on when Dobbs is going to be released. Well, you know what? People had called for a release on Dobbs earlier as opposed to later in order to preserve sort of the court's credibility, to continue to protect the justices. As you guys know all too well, there have been protests right at the Supreme Court justices' homes in violation of Section 1507 of the U.S. Criminal Code, (laughs) I might add. But where is the DOJ calling Merrick Garland? Because he's not doing anything. But um, now that the Dobbs opinion has not yet been released, I don't think the court has any benefit to wait until the last day. Mm. I do think it will be the last opinion to drop before the justices leave. Now, we've been told we're going to get opinions tomorrow. That's Thursday and Friday. Mm -hmm. And that's unprecedented because very rarely will they tack on another opinion day at the last minute. So we're kind of wondering if maybe Dobbs is Bound for Friday. So that's going to be a big outcome. As far as we knew last, there were no other additional circulating drafts. That means Alito still holds the majority. And of course, we remember that leaked opinion indicates Roe versus Wade is gone. Mm-hmm. And the issue of abortion goes back to the states as it always should have been. So that's a big case we're waiting on. I'm very interested to see what happens in the Kennedy versus Bremerton School District Me case, a case I have a lot of interest in, not only because I followed it for seven years and am very good friends with one of the attorneys on that case at First Liberty, but also because this is right in my wheelhouse. This isn't just public education. It is also free speech Mm -hmm. and it is also free exercise. And this is a coach who is a public school, was a public school employee who took a knee to pray quietly by himself at the 50-yard line after every game, and he was ultimately fired by the school district, who said, once again, it was an establishment of religion. I would say I think it's very clear where the justices should go on this. I think because we just saw a fiery dissent from Sonia Sotomayor and Carson V. Macon saying, you guys are basically trashing the Establishment Clause. By the way, that's that's sort of paraphrasing Sotomayor. <laughs> she didn't say you guys, but that's sort of <laughs> we're just going to parse out what she meant. <laughs> um, I think we're going to get the liberals again voting in a block of three, and we mm-hmm. could see the conservatives with the chief and a block of six. That's my hope for for Kennedy. I think that's a big one, too. And then one last one that's going to be very interesting. We're going to see the New York Rifle, uh, mm-hmm. New York Pistol and Rifle Association versus Bruin case. Of course, you know, my colleague Amy Swear has testified now in front of the House Judiciary Committee and in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee on gun reform bills. So this is going to be huge for her. Does New York's concealed carry permit law restrict the Second Amendment to the Constitution in a way that's prohibitive. Um, that's a real hot button issue right now based on what we've seen in terms of these shootings. So you want to talk about a powder keg. I think all of D.C. right now <laughs> feels like it's vibrating. So, yeah, those are some big ones. And then we have one huge case, West Virginia versus uh, the Environmental Protection Agency, that's going to essentially pin back the administration's ears if it goes the right way and tell the EPA, guys, You can't institute regulations on climate change that affect everybody in the country without going through what we just talked about, the appropriate rulemaking process. Mm -hmm. They tried to with sort of 
edict from on high, listen, you need your carbon emissions to be X. Wait a minute. The public, those individuals who are manufacturers, who are farmers, who run companies and corporations, all need to be able to weigh in on this. So that's going to be a big issue on how much authority the federal government has. So a couple of big ones. Yeah, just just a couple. Sarah, I have one really important last question for you. And that's how in the world do you remember all of this information? <laughs> really, though, I can attest she has no notes. No, no she just She's all just the top of your head. Well, I Lauren and I have notes, I'm, I'm like, I'm like, <laughs> and I'm like holding on as you go. I'm like, well. Ask me to remember where I put my glasses, though, and you will find me always saying I have no idea constantly. Oh <laughs> uh, well, I think you deserve a very long vacation. Oh, in, in, I'm in planning on that after uh, after July second. Hopefully, <laughs> it's going to be a down. Shift, yeah. So. Yeah. Wow. Busy next two weeks. Well, Sarah, thank you. We so appreciate your time. Thanks for having me, you guys. So we've talked about the attack on women's sports and the fight for educational freedom for children and families. But Disney is doing its best to jeopardize that. What was supposed to be one of this summer's biggest blockbusters has flopped. And leftists are trying to make a lot of excuses for it. But it's probably its woke agenda in the movie. Lightyear is a film all about the lovable Toy Story character, Buzz Lightyear. After a full year of being marooned, our first hyperspeed test flight is a go. Who are you talking to? Uh, No one. You were narrating again. I was not. But as Lauren said, the movie has flopped. So I looked up some headlines yesterday just to see what the press were saying about it. CNN writes... Pixar's Lightyear fizzles at the box office. Or from Fox Business, they write, Pixar's Lightyear sees lower domestic box office showing tied to host of problems. And AV Club just wants to know what went wrong with Lightyear. Well, uh, during opening weekend, Lightyear made just over $50 million. But if you compare that to Toy Story 4, which you know should be pretty much the same audience, that brought in $120 million on opening weekend. And one reason why this film may have flopped so big is that it does have a woke agenda. It includes a lesbian couple. In fact, there's a scene where these two women kiss. So for you know any parents who aren't up for explaining to their five-year-old why two girls just kissed on screen, uh, this movie is just off the table. And I think in in full disclosure, we want to be honest, Lauren and I, we haven't seen the movie. So if you have, go ahead and DM us on Instagram, let us know your thoughts. But I'm willing to bet that a lot of families decided they're just not going to watch this film uh, because of Disney's decision to push, once again, a woke agenda on kids. Uh, But at this point, honestly, I'm not surprised. Like, I think, you know, we've known that Disney has been continually... Um, pushing these really, really far left ideologies. And so I think we're only going to see more of this. Yeah, I agree. They've been kind of trying to see what they can sneak in without anybody noticing. Mm -hmm. And Turning Red had some allusion to a character being gay, which a lot of parents weren't happy about, but were able to justify because it went way over kids' heads. Mm -hmm. But this just seems like they're really trying to normalize it. And I think you hit it exactly on the head, Virginia, you want to take your kid to a movie where you can just kind of unwind and just be like, oh, here's an hour, it's air-conditioned, eat popcorn, <laughs> and watch a movie. And you don't want to have to have this whole lecture afterwards on sexuality and, and why this happened in the world that we live in. You know, exactly. you just want to leave and go to the pool on a nice summer day. Yeah. Uh, and 
it's not surprising at all from Disney. Mm-mm. Well, and I was reminded seeing this of how a few months ago there was this clip that ended up going viral of uh, a Disney executive speaking during a virtual Disney meeting talking about her own gay agenda. Let's roll that. Meredith Roberts and like the, the our leadership over there has been so welcoming to like my like not at all secret gay agenda. So, uh, you know, this is, I think, not stopping anytime soon because from officials at Disney, they're they're open about this. They're not hiding it anymore. They say that they have a gay agenda. It's going to keep on showing up in kids' movies. So then I think the question is, okay, uh, what are some of the films that Mm -hmm. we can take our kids to? Um, Or, you know, if you're working as a nanny over the summer, what are some of the things that you're comfortable showing the kids that you're watching? That kind of thing. Um, I will first put in a plug for VidAngel. Um, it's a great streaming service. We've uh, interviewed them before on the Daily Signal podcast. But what they do is they take all of the sort of inappropriate um, Can content. Imagine that being your job. <laughs> I know, really though. <laughs> but they like essentially they make clean versions of movies in the way that you would have a clean version of a song on Spotify. Um, they just take out anything that would you know make mm-hmm. parents feel uncomfortable, cuss words, sex scenes, that kind of thing. Um, so that's just a great general service. They have a lot of great films on there. But then I was thinking back to like, what are some of my favorite kids' movies? Did you ever watch Swiss Family Robinson growing up? I did not. And this is one of those things where my mom's going to listen to this and be like, Lauren, we watched it. And you should remember. You had so much family time with it. But I uh, I know it's, it's, it is a Disney movie, right? I think it is. Mm-hmm. It's like old classic Disney, but it's about a family that gets essentially shipwrecked on an island. Mm. And they build this awesome tree house that's like a legitimate house mm. and like every kid's dream. You're like, I want to go live in the jungle in this cool house <laughs> and like look up at the stars at night. <laughs> But there's so many, like, good, fun family movies, like uh, Emperor's New Groove. That's a great one. Monsters, Inc., WALL-E, classic. Mm. Did you have any favorite kids' movies, Lauren? I mean, I still like some of the newer Disney movies. I love Coco. Oh, yeah. I love Moana. Yeah. Just, you know, the, these these movies that are just a, char- a young character stepping up when they need to mm-hmm. and, and their families coming around them. And that's... It's very so sweet. wholesome and, and a great message for kids. I know. Yeah, I know. Scrap. Moana's even a little controversial because mm. there's no prince in the story, right? Oh, it's yeah, just yeah, yeah. a girl going on her own. But uh, while I don't think we should never have Disney princes ever again, I do think it is a good message of this young girl who can do it. She, yeah, you know, it's not even. Yeah, there's. It's not even about romance. It's just she's going to go out and she's going to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, I just And I love the music of Moana, too. Yeah, great songs. But Virginia, I will have to say I do disagree with one thing that you said. Oh, okay. Here we go. <laughs> and for once, I'm the optimist here. Mm. I really do think that Disney, as they do say, we're trying to push the gay agenda. Those are a small vocal minority, which Disney is listening mm. to because they think that's how they're going to make money. Mm. But they're seeing things like... Disney Plus subscriptions down. Yeah. Their stock price down. Lightyear, which they try to do this, is not making money in the movie theaters. Th- that is really going to affect it the way that they think about business. And just like Netflix, they will oust these people because, you know, it, it's all about the money at the end of the yeah. day for these companies. That's Disney true. is not a... Uh, a nonprofit trying to push these. And that's why it is so important to vote with your feet and vote with your dollars. And don't give money to these companies when they're making these bad decisions, because that's the only way we're going to stop it. Yeah, no, it's true. It's it's we vote with our dollars. And Lauren, I think that's a really good point. 
that if Disney continues making films or TV shows that have these really, really uh, woke messages and they continue to flop, they'll get the message. Um, I think my concern is that a lot of these woke companies give money Mm. to Disney. They donate in order to get their messages Mm. across. But at the end of the day, you got to give the people what they want. And so, yeah, time to pull those those subscriptions and don't go see Lightyear. But if you already had, let us know what you think. We do want to (laughs) know. And don't forget, on your iPhone, just go into your settings, search subscriptions, and you can see all your subscription there. And it's really easy. Just hit cancel, cancel, cancel. Oh, Mm -hmm. very efficient. Mm -hmm. All right, cool. All right, well, stick around because up next, we crown a very, very special Problematic Woman of the Week. Are you looking for an easy and entertaining way to keep up with the news you care about? The Daily Signal and Heritage Foundation YouTube channels offer interviews with policy experts on the most critical issues and debates America is facing today, as well as short explainer videos that break down complex issues and documentaries that dive deep into the ways policy actually impacts people. Go ahead and subscribe to both the Daily Signal and Heritage Foundation YouTube channels today. You can search for either on your YouTube app or visit youtube.com slash Heritage Foundation and youtube.com slash Daily Signal. Now it's that time once again, my favorite time of the week, time to crown our problematic woman of the week. And the crown goes to Chelsea and Christy Mitchell. Chelsea Mitchell is a track athlete from Connecticut. She's part of a lawsuit with Alliance Defending Freedom. Love them because her state allows boys to compete with girls. Chelsea's mom, Christy, is supporting her daughter all the way. They're actually speaking together at an event here at the Heritage Foundation that's going to be live streamed 2 p.m. the Thursday that this episode drops. So you should go online, heritage.org, and watch it. But before the event, we want to recognize Chelsea today because, as we all know, it is not easy as a young person to all of a sudden become a public figure in such a contentious political issue. We actually had the chance to have a quick conversation with Chelsea about why she's choosing to take a stand for women's sports. Here's what she had to say. Sports are separated by sex. Um, You know, we have the male and female category. And the reason why we have that is because biological males have an enormous advantage over biological females. I mean, they're stronger, faster. Um, There's so many reasons why um, their times and their performances are, you know, significantly um, outbest the best female. So we need to keep these sports separated. It's um, it's solely just about fairness in sports. You know, I would love to think that at the age of 17, I would be like Chelsea and decide, okay, I'm going to file a lawsuit. I'm going to take a stand for, for women's sports and put my foot in the ground as a track athlete uh, and say it's not okay for men to be able to compete with women. Um, but, you know, honestly, as a teenager, I'm like looking back, I'm like, I don't know that I would have done that. I don't know that I would have been willing to step into the limelight on something so contentious and become this public voice um, for for women everywhere and get tons of hate. And so I really applaud her for at, at a time in an age when you already have a lot going on in your life and you're trying to figure out who you are and all these things to take a stand, not just for yourself, but literally mm. for future generations of women. Yeah. Important every day, but especially important today on the 50th anniversary of Title IX. Absolutely. So congratulations to Chelsea for being Problematic Woman of the Week. And of course, as well to her mom, because, hey, we learn so much from our moms. Mm. They inspire us to be strong. And I know that um, a big part of why Chelsea is doing what she's doing is because she has that support from her awesome mom. 
Hmm. Well, what a great place to leave it. That's going to be it for this week's edition of Problematic Women. Join us next Thursday morning for a brand new edition. And in the meantime, please subscribe and share. Conservatives need your support in the podcast world. And we would greatly appreciate a five-star review on Spotify, CastBox, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does make a difference. Have a great week. And we'll see you on Tuesday for our interview edition. And then, of course, again on Thursday. Problematic Women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is a product of The Daily Signal, produced by Lauren Evans and Virginia Allen. And be sure to follow Problematic Women on Instagram. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton.